starting a brand new series of uh, conversations today, and I'm glad that so many of you are here uh, for the beginning of a series. It's also always a little awkward when you visit a church and you're like halfway through a series and you're like, what I miss, right? It's like walking in halfway through a movie. But here we're starting a brand new conversation. And this conversation was really inspired by a conversation that Jesus had with his, with his friends, his boys, right, his guys, his buddies. He, he was talking to them in Matthew 16, and he asked them this question that just, every time I read it, it stands out to me. Because he asked them what people are saying about him behind his back. You ever ask a friend what people say about you behind your back? But this is Jesus, right? This is the Messiah, son of God, like riding on the clouds. And he wants to know what people are saying about him when he's not around. This is weird to me that Jesus would, would say this. And his, his friends, they're very generous in their response. They don't tell him all the bad stuff that people, we know people were saying bad stuff about Jesus. We know the stuff they were saying. We have it documented. Some of it is not in the Bible, like the rumor that, you know, he was an illegitimate child of Mary and some Roman soldier. Like that was a real rumor going around when Jesus was a young man. Or, you know, there's the biblical stuff that tells us that Jesus, his adversaries, believed that he was a drunk. He partied too much. He hung out with the wrong kind of women. And you know what that means. You know, that kind of stuff that was being said about him behind his back. They didn't say any of that stuff, that he was a heretic and stuff. They said, you know, they think you're a terrific guy, Jesus. They were very nice <laughs> in response to Jesus's question. They, they just said the good stuff, right? But what's fascinating to me is that Jesus asked the question at all. He's the Messiah, son of God. Like, why would he ask such a question? And people have, have wondered why Jesus would ask that question for years. And some people think, you know, maybe Jesus knew, because he's Jesus, he knew what they were saying about him. He was just testing his disciples to see if they were saying the truth, right? Uh, other people think it was like Jesus in um, The Last Temptation of Christ. Remember that movie, if you're old like me? Uh, Willem Dafoe. When he's like, oh, who am I? Like that kind of thing. Like he's having all these self-doubts and he needs affirmation. Like is that what's happening with Jesus when he says, uh, you know, who do people say that I am in Matthew 16? Um, here's what I think. I think this was one of Jesus' most human moments. And I think because Jesus was 100% human, like all of us, he wanted to know what people thought of him because he was human. And that's the same reason all of us ask our friends what people say about us. It's the same reason you've Googled yourself more than once to see what people say about you. You know you've done it. It's, it's the same reason why every time somebody likes that cute selfie you took on Instagram, like you get, your body gives you a shot of dopamine, which is the same substance your body releases when you get high or when you make love. Like that, that same kind of hit happens to you naturally because we're wired that way to appreciate and long for other people's acceptance and approval of us. It's why... You know, <clears throat> you've wanted to know what your ex thinks of you or what your ex says about you. So you hacked into her email account that one time. You know you did it, and I know you did it. You need to stop doing it. But I, but I understand, and Jesus understands <laughs> what that's like, right? what that impulse is like. And so uh, with this series, we're going to be digging into one of history's most important questions. Who do we think Jesus is? Because ever since Jesus asked his disciples, what about you guys, what do you, what do you think, who do you think I am? Every 
everybody in every time and every place has been asking that question ever since about this nobody from nowhere. Who do we think he is? Why does he matter so much? And I believe that this question is critical to our worldview and our understanding of who we are, who was this man, Jesus. So for the next, I don't know, uh, seven, eight weeks maybe, we're going to see how it goes, but um, the more questions y'all have about Jesus, send them my way, and we'll talk about him in worship for the next eight weeks um, about who he was. Um, I think this series is one that if you're on the fence, this could be one that really decides which path you take. Either way, like I'm done with church and Jesus and religion, or I want more of this. So I want to begin with a passage that may be familiar to you. It's in your uh, half-page study guide things. It's going to be on the screens or you can just listen in. It's from John chapter 1. John was Jesus' best friend in life. And John took care of Jesus' mama when he died, after he died. Took care of her until she died. So John wrote this about his best friend. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God. And the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him not anything made that was made. In him was life and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. And then in verse 14 it says the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We spend a lot of time in the church talking about Jesus, the heavenly celestial figure, Jesus, God. I want to spend a little time today talking about Jesus the man because it was a big part of my journey back to faith. You may have uh, heard that when they asked uh, the, great, uh, uh, the, the great interviewer, Larry King, who he would most like to interview, what historical figure he'd most like to ask a question, he said, Jesus. And then they said, what would you ask him? And he said, I would ask him if he was indeed born of a virgin because that would that question would, would answer everything for me. And he's right on two fronts. Now, I think it's a little weird and unprecedented to ask a guy if his mom was a virgin. I don't think that's ever happened before. That might be a new thing for a journalist uh, to ask. But I get what he's saying, and he's right on two fronts. He's right that Jesus was a historical figure, and we talk all about that on Christmas Eve. For those of you that were around, you can find that sermon online. But there's really no refuting the fact that Jesus was an historical figure. If you're smart, you have to say an historical figure, not a historical figure. I've, I've learned, right? Thank you, English teachers, grammar police. And the other way that Larry King is right is that everything hinges on this question of who Jesus really was. All of like Western civilization and so much of what's happening today in Africa and in Asia where Christianity is blowing up, all of it hinges on the truth about Jesus. And Jesus was something. He wasn't just whatever we want him to be. He was really something with a capital S. So we have to make a choice about what he was. You know, uh, uh, C.S. Lewis said he was a liar, lunatic, or the Lord, which means he was, he was either legitimate, he was who he said he was, the son of God, and I've given you some uh, scriptures and the study guides to look up where he says, I, I'm, I'm the one. Right? It's not other people giving him that title later. Or he was a hoax. He was a crazy man like, like Manson or like Jim Jones. I almost said Jerry Jones. He's a madman too. Jim Jones and or <laughs> go Texans. Or, uh, you know, uh, or, or he... Uh, or he was um, just, uh, just, a, just a liar. He was a hoax. 
and he was one of those things for sure. Now, <clears throat> I understand we're not all going to agree on who Jesus really was, who you think he was, this man who really lived in, in a time and place. He really existed. And that's okay if we don't all agree. One of our core values we agreed on very early, before we had a name for this church, we decided we were going to be a place, a community where we can agree to disagree. Where there's not going to be any kind of expulsion or like inviting people away just because there's disagreement about some theological issue. We're going to be in disagreement about some of these things uh, throughout this, this series. That's all right. We welcome and encourage that. Some of our best questions and conversations come from those disagreements if we do it with grace in our hearts. If I were to guess, there would be, I would think, three groups of people in the room right now about where you stand with Jesus. And I can identify each group, and I think it's broken down one-third, one-third, one-third throughout the room. And I can identify each group with an emoji. And the first group that I can identify in the room always, because you have the hands in the air during every song, is the OMG group. And that is the group that for whom there are no questions. The OMG group, I love you. I love you. I'm so glad you're here, but I know you're frustrated with my preaching sometimes. You're like, when are we going to get through this remedial stuff and get to the real meat, right? Like, when are we going to talk about, like, why are we dealing with these questions about who Jesus was? We're here. We're Christians. This is church. Let's dig into Proverbs 36, 14b or whatever. Like, you know, you're like ready for more. I appreciate your patience, but our mission here is for these other two groups, right? So the second group of people, second third in the room, I think, is what I call the SMH. Uh, group, you're, you're defined by the shaking of your head. Uh, even though you don't do it publicly, you're doing it right now inside, right? inside your head. Like you're shaking your head at most everything that I say, most everything that we sing. You're nice about it. You're not going to let other people see you. But really, deep down, you're skeptical of all things religion. And you're looking at me, a preacher up here, and you know that I can't be trusted because they pay me to be up here saying this stuff. Obviously, I'm going to have inherent bias. I probably work on commission with every convert. I get paid more money. Like... <laughs> So some of you in the second group are shaking your head like, I'm never going to believe this guy. I don't come to church for all of that superstitious, wishy-washy stuff. I come to meet people. The girls are cute. You know, I come to, I come to make my wife happy or, or you know, I, I come to make someone else take care of my kids for an hour for free. Like, it's fantastic on a weekend and I just... I'm here, but inside, like I'm not really here because the Bible to you is no more credible than any other religious book. Christianity to you is no more believable than any other religion. You've kind of had it with all the manipulative stuff. It seems like just one more advertisement. That's a bait and switch that can't be trusted. One third of you, I would guess, are in this group. Group three is a group I call the LOL group. And the LOL group is just here to party. Y'all here... Y'all know who you are. You're here to have fun. And you don't understand why people argue about religion because you should just be like loving life and people like you because you're nice and you like to party. And that should be all it's about is, is feeling good and having a good time. And, and I've always deeply envied the LOL group. I've always wanted to be a part of the LOL group. Y'all won't let me in because I'm not cool enough. I'm, I'm, I always want to talk about serious stuff. I remember being a teenager at like youth lock-ins and sitting in a circle with other teenagers and I'm the only one there that wants to talk about the meaning of life and comparative religions and, you know, five minutes into my conversation, I'm the only one in the circle that's not making out with somebody. Like the, the LOL guys, they always get the girls and I always wanted to be a whatever LOL guy, you know, like I always wanted to be that. But as much as I envy it, I also know deep down the people that tend to laugh the most also sometimes hurt the deepest. Because you've kind of just thrown up your hands 
and said, we're never going to know the truth. So why try? What's it? It's kind of, if you ever read Ecclesiastes, like some of you are just in that Ecclesiastes frame of mind. It's like, whatever. We're never really going to know, so why argue? Let's just have a good time and eat and drink and be merry. It says that in the Bible somewhere, doesn't it? And so... And so that's where a lot of you are. And, and here's the thing, though. I know for a fact there is a very thin, a razor-thin line between saying, I'm just going to love my life and saying, nothing matters. It's a very thin line. And those of you in this group, when the music stops and you're laying in bed by yourself and you are left to your thoughts, that rare occasion when you don't have any noise going on around you, you know exactly what I'm saying. There's a very thin line between saying, I'm just going to have a good time. And saying, probably nothing's true. So why not enjoy the ride? This is why this series matters. Whether you believe the New Testament is the word of God or not, you must acknowledge, if you're an honest intellectual, you must acknowledge that the New Testament is different than any other religious book. Because these people, these authors of the New Testament, were not writing or inventing a mythology. Because the person about whom they wrote, they knew. They were his friends. They were his buddies. Two of them were his blood brothers who didn't even believe in him until he was resurrected. These guys, they broke bread with Jesus. They spent time with him. They drank wine with him. They stayed up late at night asking questions of him. And they watched him die at the end. And and for 30 years, Jesus was to them just a guy. Most of them didn't even really come around to the whole religious implications of this movement until the resurrection. We don't really understand that now, but, but when they were following him around, they liked him as a guy. He enjoyed his presence because he drew men to him. He drew women to him too. And women, for the first time in their lives, many of them felt safe in the presence of a man because of the kind of person he was. Now, for 30 years, though, Jesus was just that, a person to them. A Palestinian Jewish bachelor guy. And he did all the things that Palestinian Jewish men did. His Jewish heritage was very important. Obviously, he followed all the Jewish rules and rituals. And he was a devout man who knew the Hebrew scriptures well. He observed the laws and traditions. But we also know that Jesus, as religious as he was, was no altar boy. When we look at the personality of Jesus, he was not uh, the kind of just sit and be a good boy at church believer. Jesus' primary adversaries and enemies, let us not forget, were preachers and priests. And so that tells us that they believed him to be a threat. That tells us that Jesus, this 30-year-old Palestinian Jewish bachelor guy talked like a threat talks, a threat to the establishment. He talked and he walked, he carried himself and he lived like a threat, which is why when I see Jesus portrayed in modern-day art and, and movies, I want to pull my hair out because this image of Jesus is not a threat to anyone. Unless you have small children that you keep away from him, right? Like this, this guy, this guy never threatened anyone. Like this doesn't get you arrested. This doesn't get you executed, right? 
And we know that's what happened to Jesus, regardless of what you believe about him theologically. We know these things happened to him. And so, you know, I doubt many of you really believe that that's what Jesus looked like. And you probably never pictured Jesus like that, but it just drives me crazy when I see him in movies and art like that. And I do think that we are in danger as a culture of so stripping Jesus of all things human and all things masculine that we are in danger of creating our own modern-day version of this, which is what I call hipster Jesus. Are you all familiar with hipsters? Have you been to Montrose? Have you been to coffee bars? Like, this guy, this Jesus, like, you've never heard of the bands he likes. And he's like a vegan, but not like a fair-weather vegan. He's like, his shoes are like made of hemp. Like, he's like that kind of... You know what I mean? And he quit Facebook in like 2009. And, you know, because they started doing the promoted ads and, you know, things like that. And it was was all about, you know, privacy. And this Jesus, you know, he still never will forgive the Democrats for what they did to, to Bernie. And this Jesus, he loves being ironic. And so he wears a t shirt. It says, you know, my my boss, a Jewish carpenter or whatever. And like this Jesus, you know this guy. And that is not the Jesus we find in Scripture. And that's what drives me crazy about these images we have of Jesus. That they're not true to the New Testament's portrayal of Jesus. And the guys that wrote the New Testament knew him personally. Most of them firsthand knowledge. They knew him personally. And so what do we know about who Jesus was based on what they told us? We know a few things. First, I think we can... I think this is reading between the lines, but I think we can assume that Jesus was average looking. I think we can assume Jesus was average looking. Why? Because the Bible says nothing about his appearance. And that's what you do when someone's average looking. You don't say anything. <laughs> you know, he had a great personality, Jesus. Whatever, you know, like he, But the, the, the Bible has a long precedent of describing physical features of those who fall outside the range of normal. Whatever that is, right? So, so like David and, uh, and Solomon and Joseph in the Old Testament, they're all described as being handsome or having great features or being strong or whatever, you know, and Samson was all ripped, right? Like, and then on the other end, too, like if somebody's like really unattractive, the Old Testament says that, too. There's several examples I could share, but I don't want to offend anyone. So they, I'll just skip right along. So the, the, but it's there. There's a precedent there. And so the fact that the New Testament writers didn't see fit to include anything about Jesus' physical attributes tells us that he was probably uh, an average-looking first century Palestinian Jew. Now, um, all the average-looking people in the room, say amen. Amen. Say, I'm like Jesus, right? So, all right, this is your moment, average people. (laughs) I should say this is our moment, average people. So, all right, so... uh, (laughs) Some of you are like, he's being really generous with himself right now, so... (laughs) <laughs> anyway, so uh, uh, what, what, what's helpful about this conversation is, is because of archaeology and anthropology, the gifts of these sciences, we know what a first century average Palestinian Jewish man looked like. Like we know, and, and it's not like the images we showed you earlier, we, we know what they, what they looked like. Um, first century Palestinian Jewish men on average were 5'3 or 5'4". So Jesus was probably about Pastor Gio's height, sans boots, right? So 
if you want to picture Jesus, I'm talking about this, I hope you will. He, he probably had brown skin, olive or brown skin, uh, thick, dark, curly hair, large brown eyes. And you probably heard Jesus was a carpenter, which tells us something about how he would have looked as well. That's sort of true that he was a carpenter. Um, but I think sometimes we glamorize that carpenter thing. I remember having a children's Bible when I was little, and it showed, like, Joseph apprenticing Jesus. And they, like, had a wood shop with, like, blueprints on the wall and, like, a table saw or something. And I, I don't think that's what it looked like for Joseph and Jesus. They were not master craftsmen. There's another word for master craftsmen. That was architecton or architecton. That's where we get architect from. They were not that. So tectons were day laborers. Tectons pieced meal their career, their job together. Tectons were the guys standing outside of Home Depot every morning hoping to be picked up for work that day, hoping to feed their families. Those were the tectons. And that's where Joseph and Jesus fell in the social strata. And tectons were were insulted. They were reviled by the higher-ups, right? They were somewhere between. They were below farmers and shepherds, but they were above, like, beggars. They were really low on the, on the social totem pole, right? And so we get a, a little bit of an example of this uh, when Jesus returns to Nazareth, his hometown, to teach. And as he's teaching the religious authorities, they get jealous. And so they want to insult him publicly. And this is how his hometown religious leaders insult him. They say, isn't that the tecton's son? In, in your Bible, isn't that the carpenter's son? Isn't that the tecton's son? Those guys, it's not like they forgot Joseph's name. Nazareth had like 100 people living in it. Everybody knew everybody's name. But they wanted to insult Jesus and bring him down a rung. And that's how they did it. By talking about what he did for a living or what his father did for a living. And in Mark, it refers directly to Jesus as uh, tecton as well. And so uh, this was just an insult to put Jesus back in his place. So this is what we know. Jesus, a Jewish guy, 5'4", probably, with Middle Eastern features, scratching out a living as a day laborer. Put that image together in your head as we talk. So where does a day laborer, a tecton, find work in a town of 100 people? He doesn't, right? There's not much going on, not much industry in Nazareth in the first century. But there was a city being built, or really rebuilt, um, called Sepphoris. It was six miles away from Nazareth. And uh, Sepphoris was this, uh, these are the ruins of Sepphoris. It was this huge city. Let's see that other slide of, of Sepphoris as well. It was a huge city with a great big amphitheater. The r remains of that amphitheater are still there today. I'm going to do, a, at some point, a men's uh, trip through the Holy Land. We'll do a couple strip or a co-ed trip at some point. Man, I'm going to take you all to the Holy Land. Um, sometime this year, and we're going to see this stuff with our own eyes. But six miles from Nazareth. And so this is where undoubtedly Jesus went every day with his father and brothers probably to go to work. So they would get up in the morning early. They would eat some chickpeas or dates or whatever they had for breakfast, and uh, they would t take their tools, and they would walk with their tools six miles in the morning, and they would work all day like slaves until the sun went down. They couldn't do it anymore. They didn't have any more work to do. Then they would take their tools, and they would walk back home six miles. And every day Jesus was hungry. Every day Jesus was thirsty. 
and, and this is probably what, if you ever wondered, like, what Jesus did, where Jesus went between ages 12 and 30, you ever hear that question? Like, what did he do? What was his hidden life between 12 and 30? And I've heard, like, scholars argue that he went to India, and he, like, saw the world. And I'm like, this guy was a tecton. He was a firstborn tecton. He probably was in Sepphoris building a city, providing for his family, as was the duty of a firstborn son. That's probably where you found him. And that's probably why later so many of his stories were everyday stories that guys like him would have told about things like foundations and doors and yokes that a carpenter would have built. Everything you find in his teaching would have been something that he and his boys talked about. And I think until he was 30, that's what he did. He was a guy. He was a man's man. Until John the Baptist, his cousin, finally convinced him to start his life at 30. Now, let me ask you a question. You think 20 years of walking 12 miles a day, carrying construction tools, building things, lifting bricks and swinging hammers, leaves a man looking like this? You think either of those men have ever seen a hammer? I hope when you think of Jesus in your mind's eye, I hope you picture less of a wimpy guy speaking in a British accent saying things like, verily, verily, I say unto thee. Like, I hope you picture less of that. And more of a guy who was strong as an ox because he carried his own tools and every day he made something out of nothing. you're on the fence, I understand why you would be. If you're having doubts, I know why you would doubt Jesus, a guy like me standing up and singing his praises. And I know why you'd be skeptical of religion because religion has let you down and so many religions have been proven false and you've seen going clear on HBO and like religions are just crazy and you know that even if you had an inkling to believe the stuff I say, the moment you sign on the dotted line, that's when we bring out the snakes and things get crazy. Like you're worried it's going to be a bait and switch. And let me tell you, and I don't mean this as harsh as it's going to sound because I, I care so deeply for every person that walks through these doors, but it's not going to change my feelings toward you one way or another if we never see you here again or if you never give a dime to this church or any church. All I'm asking you to do is just for a moment, let yourself consider the question, what do I believe to be true about Jesus? Just Try to scrape away some of that cynical stuff that has layered over your heart for years and ask yourself, what do I really believe about this man? And if I don't believe who he said he was, then why don't I believe that? And what are the implications that he was something other than what he said he was? That's what interests me. What do you believe about Jesus of Nazareth? And I know many here are jaded. You're sick of being let down. So you tell yourself, we'll never know the truth, so why try? I'm not hoping by the end of today's sermon you're going to be bought in and professing the whole Apostles' Creed. I, I tiptoe my way through the Apostles' Creed. And I'm a preacher. So I'm not asking you to have a whole theology worked out in your head. I just want you to know your answer to this question about Jesus. For a long time, I was in that SMH group with some of y'all. In bad days, I still find one foot on that side of the aisle. When I'm tired or worn out or frustrated, 
My path, though, back to Jesus, it didn't have much at all to do with Jesus, the Son of God, riding on the clouds, a cosmic ghost, you know, doing magic things. It wasn't about, you know, Jesus, the the Messiah, the second person of the Holy Trinity, who was and is and is to come, and that OMG group that I mentioned earlier, y'all just give me a second here. I know that's where y'all are at. That's not what it was for me, where it all began to turn around for me was when I realized that Jesus was a man who actually lived and had friends and family and probably a crush here or there and who actually dealt with frustration and temptation, who actually went to work and spoke with a voice and and had people that loved him and people that hated him. And he lived and he laughed and he wept and he died. And his closest friends, his boys, they kept his movement alive. I'm here to tell you, I I could never bring myself to worship Jesus the God until I learned to love Jesus the man. And that was a first step for me. And I know many of you are probably in a similar place. This passage here really began to turn it around for me when I came across it and was in the Holy Land when I did. It was Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. Well, we read, we don't have a high priest. You get it? This is not one of those religions. We don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. We don't have a religious authority who stands on his pedestal and judges us from on high. But one who in every respect has been tempted as we are and yet without sin. Do you understand what the Bible has said about Jesus? He's not sitting up in the clouds waiting for you to screw up. So he can punish you or show you how bad you've always been or, or manipulate you or get you to give more money or get you to be a religious fanatic. Or, he's not waiting to prove you wrong about yourself. He has walked where you walk. And when you're tempted, when you fail, when you fall on your face, his response isn't to smite you from on high. His response is to look you in the eye and go, man, I have been there. I have been there. Every temptation, the temptation to quit, he has experienced. The temptation to resent your parents He felt that temptation at times. He was a teenage boy for a moment. Like every temptation I've had to just throw up my hands with religion. When religious people, Christians, when they act crazy and say stupid things on the news that make people turn away from the church. And I just want to do God-awful things to them. Jesus, I know he felt that temptation too. And every time I've been tempted just to walk away from belief, I know he was tempted too. Every time I've been tempted just to drink until the hurt stops, I know he was tempted too. So this man, for me, this man was the doorway to to belief. Because his response to my inadequacy isn't, you awful person. It's, I know. I've been there. There's something about a man who's been there. You know what it's like to have somebody who's never walked in your shoes try to give you advice about the problems you're 
It's offensive. You can't wait to get away from them. Jesus came so he would empathize with every path you're walking and every weakness you're feeling right now, every sin you've committed, every failure of your life. Jesus wants to look you in the eye and say, man, I've been there. Put all the religious stuff aside, all the church manipulation that's happened to you in your past, everything you've heard about the Bible aside just for a moment and consider the man Jesus. And if this man is someone you could anchor your life to in this chaotic world where we just blow with the winds of change, whatever direction they're blowing, if this man could be your anchor and your friend and your God, Do you believe to be true about Jesus? I don't want to make any assumptions about where you're at, but I believe God has been working on some of your hearts to soften them. I hope that you know that this thing we've come to call Christianity is not a religion that's about checking off the right boxes and being good little boys and girls. It's not about a moral code or a holy book you have to believe every word of. This thing we call Christianity is about one man and you and your relationship. Let it begin and end there. Let's pray together.